Everybody, go and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're back in our series on Acts this evening, and uh, we're calling this series House of Acts. We don't just want to read the scriptures and think about, uh, you know, maybe in some kind of sentimental way how nice it must have been back then. We actually believe that the scriptures are not only true, they are true, but they're also livable. That what we read on these pages, it's actually possible for a church like ours to experience and um, Tonight we have a pretty interesting passage that we're going to get to. Now, if you remember, all the way back in November, the last time we had a uh, message in this series on the book of Acts, uh, we saw that the very first church that was ever started had a liturgy. Um, That's just like a fancy way of saying they had a way of life. They had a rhythm to the way in which they lived their lives. And uh, what we see is that they're eating together. They're sitting under the teaching of the apostles. Um, Some of the apostles are performing miracles. Uh, The the church is growing daily, it says. There's no needy persons among them. It's just this gorgeous, gorgeous image um, of really, you know, things that I would want to see in this church. Anybody who reads about the first church in the book of Acts, you just go, oh, if only I could find people like that. <laughs> and, he, and God's like, I'm trying to make you like that, because everybody else wants those same people too, right? So it's like God is, what he's doing is he's building this first church, and we, and we just get this incredible imagery. So uh, go ahead and look down your Bibles. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here's just an, uh, like a, a glimpse into their life. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Wouldn't that unity just be amazing? Could you imagine just being able to look around to your right and to your left (laughs) in a divided society like we have today and say, we're of one heart and one mind. What a beautiful thing. I, I praise God for our leadership team. That is the case. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. Now, this image that we get of this first church is just like sun-soaked, it's peaceful, it sounds amazing, you can almost taste the falafel being shared among the disciples in it, you're like, that is so incredible, but then you have this story, this is tonight, (laughs) gosh, okay, Acts chapter 5 verse 1 says this, now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, well, remember, Barnabas did the same thing, well, they're like, We see you. We're doing the same thing. Verse two, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It's your money, man. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price 
you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, she said, that's the price. Verse nine, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay, so if any of you guys sell your house and you lie to me about it, I'm just saying. (laughs) Remember that sun-soaked image of the church just sharing with each other, listening to teachings, eating pita on a rooftop. How far away does it feel now? (laughs) How long ago does that sound, right? Um, now, this is uh, the first time that we see sin in the church. You know, this, this is a brand new church. They haven't recorded any other sins necessarily in the church. This is the first time that we see a sin. Um, not only that, but, you know, today you hear about, like, you know, sins in churches all the time. You hear about, you know, pastors making moral failures or churches splitting or people, you know, like uh, taking money from the church or whatever. Uh, but people dying <laughs> in churches? What? I, I don't, I haven't seen that. I'm not like opening up like Christianity today and it's like, hey, somebody lied over in Ohio at some church and so they're dead now. You're like, uh, no, that doesn't really happen. Um, and I have to be honest with you guys, you know, uh, when I picked the book of Acts to go through as a church, I knew that this day would come. I was like, I was, you know, and I'll be honest, you teach verse by verse through almost any Bible, any book in the Bible, and uh, you're going to hit a verse that is uncomfortable to teach, and I was like, oh, I don't want to teach First John, that's tough, oh, First Timothy, that's even tougher, and then I think, oh, Acts is pretty good, but then you read Acts, and you're like, oh, dang, chapter five, really? I thought, I thought for a second, I thought, well, you know, I wonder if, if we could have the Christmas break, and we come back and be like, okay, we're in chapter six of Acts, everybody, and... Uh, <laughs> Look, I know there's a temptation um, to not want to read a passage in the scripture. Um, But remember, our second core value as a church is the scriptures are authoritative and they teach us the truth that leads to freedom. The scriptures are authoritative and they tell us the truth that leads to our freedom. See, the Bible is like a musical score. It's like a classical musical score. Um, there's all kinds of parts that don't have much resolve. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. And I wish that there would, I know the note that I want to hear, but I'm, I'm just not hearing it right now. And, and then it moves on to another part. And you're like, there's a little bit of resolve there. And then, oh, that's the resolve. It's like, oh, there's the resolve right there. And, and the scriptures, if you just spend all of your time just going, I only want where it, it resolves, you actually aren't giving the full symphony that the scriptures are. You're not getting the full beauty that the scriptures are. It's important for us to read these passages. We need all of it. It's God's word. So look, I know this is a tough passage. Um, So what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about how the tough parts of this passage so that we don't miss the really, really important lesson that this story teaches churches that are brand new, like our church, okay? So get your notepads out. (laughs) Go on airplane mode. Don't tweet anything from this, okay? (laughs) Uh, So let's start here. The the problem that this passage presents. Here's just a few convictions that I have. These aren't convictions that I've made up. These are convictions from the text. Here they are. I believe Jesus' death was enough punishment for all. 
according to Hebrews chapter 10. He, has, he was a perfect sacrifice. In fact, Hebrews 10 says, look, there were bad sacrifices that didn't cleanse everybody, and then there was finally a good one, and it was Jesus' sacrifice that cleansed and made everyone who wanted it pure. It's in the text, Hebrews 10. Uh, I also believe that God is good. Exodus 34, verse 6 specifically, brings out the character of God, that God is a good God who does good, and that he's not operating on some kind of like, oh, well, God has a different definition of goodness, so we just have to have our definition formed to his. Uh, it doesn't say that in the text. It just says that God is good, okay? So he probably is good in ways that we're familiar with the definition of good. Uh, I believe that for those who are in Christ, nothing separates them from him according to Romans chapter eight, okay? I also believe that God does not rejoice in the death of anyone. And to prove that, check out this verse. Ezekiel 18 verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So, what am I supposed to do Thinking of all those other passages, what am I supposed to do with, with, with the full weight of what the gospel means for a person as illustrated by the entire New Testament? What am I to do with the truth that Jesus died so we could live in this passage? I have so many questions about this passage. I think like, okay, well, were these two people actual followers of Jesus or were they just hanging out with these people? Um, were they in Christ and all did that afford someone? Did they have the Holy Spirit? I have so many questions. And since we have a value as a church for being a thinking church, uh, you'll maybe even start to see this. Um, there will be things that I say, and you may hear people get up here, and they say different things than what I said. Because you know what? There's no party line here at the church. We have our 10 core values that we say, we are not debating these, we're not deciding over these, we would die for these values, we would die for our vision, but everything else, wherever there's gray, we're gonna try to, our best to not be dogmatic about, okay? So because we're a thinking church, that means there are issues that I would die for, there, there are issues that I have no fear proclaiming, but there are areas in the scriptures that are kind of gray. There are areas in the scriptures that are black and white. You need to see the information, you need to read the scriptures for yourself, and really create your own convictions about what kind of lifestyle the scriptures are uh, giving to you. So we're gonna kind of practice this limbo, practice this balancing act right now. I think there are three viable ways for you to read this, this story. Three viable ways for you to read this story. Uh, and if you're taking notes, you should, uh, you should take notes. If you're not taking notes, write these things down. Uh, the first option is this, God killed them. That's the first option, is that God killed these people. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God was like, no, you're dying, right? Uh, Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 39, it says this, uh, see now that I myself am he, there is no God beside me, I put to death, and I bring to life. Those are the words of God. Uh, it seems that they lie to the Holy Spirit, and then they die. Is there a connection? Well, maybe. Maybe there's a connection between those two events, but the text nowhere says that God slew Ananias and Sapphira. Nowhere does it say, and God killed them, and the Holy Spirit put them to death. It's they lie to the Holy Spirit, and then they die. It only appears that God is doing it because it can be easy for us when we read supernatural events or we read about the supernatural happening, we, 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 we read about it in such a way that we go, well, only God could do supernatural things. Only God can do things that are beyond the natural. 
Um, and therefore, whatever happens that's supernatural in the text must reflect God's will. Uh, so my question to you this evening is, is everything supernatural that happens in our world, is it God's doing? Well, let me just put this forth to you. Jesus didn't seem to have that worldview. In fact, Jesus, he referred to supernatural events happening around me, or around him. He referred to those as uh, do workings of a strong man, and that he was sent to tie up the strong man, in this case, Satan. He was sent to tie him up so that he could liberate those who were being affected by the strong man, right? So Jesus had a very clear understanding that when he encountered uh, people who were demonically possessed or demonically influenced, that this wasn't God's doing, and he was there to do something about it, right? Nowhere does it say that God killed them, but, but, I also have to say that God is God. <laughs> and should God choose to remove life, he's the one who gave it. I might get some emails. Uh, I can be confident that according to the scriptures, God doesn't take life joyfully, but I am resolute in believing that God is just and he has every right to do what he will. He's God. So that's one option. God killed them. You guys thinking? Second option is this. Satan killed them. <laughs> okay. Second option is that Satan killed them. Next slide. The cross reveals, and a wealth of biblical material confirms that the essence of God's wrath against sin is simply allowing evil to run its self-destructive course through the free choice of humans not choosing God. We need to read that again. You need to get your phones out. What are you doing? Take a picture of this. The cross reveals, and a wealth of biblical material confirms that the essence of God's wrath against sin is simply allowing evil to run its self-destructive course through the free choice of humans not choosing God. Okay? The essence of sin is pushing God away. That's what sin is. And since God is the source of life, sin is by its very nature choosing death. Okay? In the garden, the Lord told Adam, in the day that you eat from the forbidden tree, you will certainly die. It doesn't say, in the day that you eat from that specific tree, I'm going to kill you. It doesn't say that. It says, when you eat from the tree, death is going to follow, because death follows sin. Think about this. I think it's significant that Ananias and Sapphira had allowed Satan to fill their hearts. Look down at your Bibles, verse three. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. We have to remember that Satan, the enemy, that's in Hebrew, Satan just means the accuser or the enemy of God, is actively looking for opportunities to destroy, to discredit the church, and to malign God's character. It's what he wants to do. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter, be sober, maybe even reflecting on this passage, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about, seeking whom he may devour. We have to remember that Satan doesn't like you. <laughs> Satan doesn't want you to thrive. Satan wants you dead. 
Now, something else that's interesting in verse 5 is that in the King James Version, uh, it's translated this in Acts 5, verse 5. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Now, this wording, gave up the ghost, is the same wording in uh, the, in uh, the, the moment when Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn. It's the exact same phrase. And in Greek, the, the word is pneuma, spirit, breath. Go, holy, it's where we get holy ghosts. So they're both, in both situations, they, th- there's a moment where they give up their spirit. Okay? What does this mean? Where am I going with this? Well, gave up here, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, and in the case of Jesus on the cross, in Greek is the active voice, which represents the subject as the doer or the performer of the act. So in both of these cases, Ananias is giving up his spirit to die. Jesus is giving up his spirit to die. Now, maybe you don't believe me, but... This is what Jesus said, remember? In John 10, verse 17, he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Nobody kills him, right? <laughs> but I lay down it down of my own accord. I give up my spirit of my own accord. Now, okay, so, so what this could mean is that both Jesus and Ananias and Sapphira yielded, gave up the ghost. They gave up their spirit. They did it. It wasn't done to them, okay? Not only was Ananias' mind determined to do wrong, determined to lie, but he was filled with Satan. When his sin was exposed, the feelings of guilt and shame in the presence of the leadership of the church and in his situation could have essentially caused him to give up on life and die. But I also have to say this. The text does not say that Satan killed them, does it? doesn't say God killed them. It doesn't say Satan killed them. It doesn't even say that their sin killed them. So option three, Peter killed them. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know, but he's the last to see them alive. I'm just saying, right? It was Peter with the spirit in the ballroom or something, right? Um, there is a possibility that we might understand Peter to be using his authority to remove whatever divine protection Ananias and Sapphira had, thereby handing them over to the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, See, we know from the scriptures that the disciples believed they had the power to do some really, really crazy stuff. Luke chapter nine, verse four says this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> so they're going along, there's a, in context, there's a town that rejects Jesus, and they're like, hey, we got some crazy powers, we can call down fire from heaven, would you like us to do it right now? And Jesus is like, no, right? So we know that they believe that they have this power to do really crazy things and to even judge people with death. Uh, We also know that Peter, uh, he's one to do some rash things, right? (laughs) He's one to do some things that you're like, he's like, I will never deny you. And then it's like a half an hour later, I don't know who who that guy is. I've never been around him, right? Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, that's interesting, but I don't know. How could Peter do something with God's power that God wouldn't necessarily condone. 
right? How could God, how, how could Peter take the Holy Spirit and do something with God's Spirit that God doesn't want to have happen, right? Well, well think, remember Moses. Moses was given this staff. It was kind of a magical staff in some sense. And this staff, when he would throw it down, it would become a snake. Or it, he could use it to do all kinds of things. In fact, he parts the Red Sea with this staff. Now, can you remember a time where Moses used his staff to do something that God didn't want him to do? He hit the rock. Oh, yes. Bible scholars over here, Multnomah University's finest. He takes his staff at one point and he hits the rock, right? And water comes out. And it wasn't what God wanted him to do. In fact, he's rebuked by God because of it. And notice, well, the staff still works even after that. See, we're given the power of having God's spirit. It is our job to constantly submit to the Holy Spirit to ask God what he would have us do rather than wield power without any collaboration. So, so get this, if Peter is the one who kills them, the question is, did Peter do the right thing? Well, I would just say, notice this, as you read through the rest of the New Testament, we never see this happen again. Never again is there a moment within the church context where somebody dies because they lie in front of an apostle. Um, this doesn't go on to become a teaching of the church. Hey, if you, you know, you're having issues with people in your church, you know, kids are lying to their parents. Well, here's, an, here's something we've used in the past. Um, <laughs> Peter doesn't ever say at any point in any of his letters, go call death on people. So the question is this, just because the Bible mentions something doesn't mean that God endorses it. We have to learn to read the scriptures, don't we? Just because the Bible mentions it doesn't mean that the Bible endorses it. Remember polygamy? What was God's original ideal for marriage? One man and one woman for life within the covenant of a marriage. And when you, whenever you see, the Bible never at any point says polygamy is bad. But example after example after example in the narrative, what do we learn? Polygamy just doesn't work. It's not good. God's original intent is good, right? So just because that this story is right here doesn't mean that this should be a practice. It doesn't mean that it's something that we should ever seek, right? Ultimately, we need to look at the context of the text and aim, and the, and the specific aim of the person of Jesus. I, I, I want to just kind of put this story and another story in your minds and kind of hold them in balance just for a second. I want you to think about this in light of the story with Jesus where there's a woman caught in adultery and thrown at his feet. You remember that story? There's a woman who was caught having sex with somebody she's not married to. She's taken, thrown before Jesus, and th then Je Jesus is asked, well, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And, you know, Jesus has this incredible moment where he says, you know, he who is without sin, you can be the first to throw the stone. And one by one, from the oldest going down to the youngest, they, they all leave, right? Now, I, I want you to think about this. There's an actual law in that context that people who commit adultery should be killed. And Jesus has grace. There is no law in this context that you have to give your money away to the church or you have to sell your house and give it all to the church. And this happens. So could Peter have been wrong? I think it's possible. I don't know. I think it's possible. Here's the deal. 
Jesus came to bring life through his death. That's the truth of the gospel. Jesus came to bring life through his sacrifice. Satan is here to destroy your life. So we have to filter everything we read in the text through the lens of the entire witness of the scriptures and in particular the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so go chew on those things. Stay up late talking about them, but we have to kind of move beyond the controversy of the text to get to what really matters. Can we do that? Just nod, smile and nod. Okay, so um, what is the truth about the gospel and what is the truth that this passage is trying to teach us? What's the truth of this passage? Well, firstly, this teaches us just how serious sin is. Regardless of how Ananias and Sapphira died, uh, the image is strong. They sinned, they lied, and death followed, right? We should be paying attention to that. Uh, This is the truth of the gospel. Sin is not harmless. Sin is harmful. Living outside of the ethic of the New Testament and the ethic of Jesus is dangerous for your body and for your soul. That's the truth. See, um, imagine this. If you were the designer of your life, if you willed yourself into being, we were just hanging out with the clouds last night, and Josh mentioned this. He says, everybody who ever lived did not choose to exist. Your parents chose, or they, they made a mistake, but, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Every, nobody ever said, I'm going to will myself into existence. I'm going to exist, right? Nobody, ever, nobody does that, right? But, but, but some people live this way. I was just watching um, a chef's table, and there's this uh, one particular chef who, uh, he, he says in it, he says, all my life I have organized and worked uh, my life so that I have no leader, I have no master, and I have no authority. What is that claim? That claim is, I, am, I willed my existence. I'm the designer. I have the right to do with my life what I will do, right? But the reality, as we read through, this, through the text, and for any Christian, has to recognize, is that we aren't the designer. God's our designer, right? Sin is simply not living in accordance with his design. That's what sin is. And when we do that, when we live not in accordance with the way that God has designed us to live, we ruin the design. Such a dumb analogy, but I just have to use it. Uh, If I were to go to the Ford dealership, and I were to buy a Ford, and I were to drive it off the lot, and, and I see in the glove compartment it says, only use premium unleaded. Only use premium unleaded. And I'm like, hmm. And I keep on driving it, and I think to myself, well, you know, oh gosh, I should have been watching the gas gauge, and, and now I'm at home, and I, and I don't have any gas, but you know what I do have? I have some oil uh, that goes in my lawnmower. I'll just put that in there and see what happens. Don't be surprised if the truck stops working. Why? Because I didn't pay attention to the original intent of the truck, to the original design of the truck, right? It's the same for us. It's the same for humans. God has an original design for all of humanity that when followed produces flourishing, and when not followed, produces destruction. Say this with me. Put your hand over your heart. God hates sin because he loves me. Say it again. God hates sin because he loves me. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Their sin was this. It was saying they did something that in reality they did not do, in order to appear good to the people around them. That's their sin. It was, it was, hey, we gave, yeah, this is all of the money. But in reality, not doing that, in order to appear 
good to the people around them. Jesus has really strong words about this. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's, it's not right to say that you're gonna do one thing and to not do it. It's not. It's not right to say that you're gonna do one thing and only do part of it. It's not right. Our speech that is divided reveals a heart that is divided. Our speech, when it's divided from our actions, reveals a heart that is divided. The the reality is this, is that multiple gods produce multiple worship in your heart. You're like, what? Here's what I'm getting at. This is uh, Cornelius Planting of this philosopher who I love. He says this, sin pollutes and divides. An adultery both pollutes and splits a marriage and people. Accordingly, in scripture and much of the Christian tradition, a pure heart is an undivided one. Scriptural writers fear double-mindedness, not merely because it shows disloyalty and ingratitude, but also because its perpetrator becomes its victim. Divided worship destroys worshipers. Divided speech reflects a divided heart. And this is what's happening in this passage. Their worship of what people thought of them and their protection of their possessions bound them. But the gospel is that the worship of Jesus will actually set you free. The singularity of worship of Jesus will actually set you free. See, this passage, it teaches us about fear and freedom. This passage is about fear and freedom. I I want you to see the natural just juxtaposition of the text uh, because there's no chapter breaks in the original text. So go ahead and look down at your Bibles. Uh, Chapter four, verse 34 says this. There was no needy person among them for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the disciples' feet. So do you see what's being said when there's no chapter breaks? Look at both people, and and, and here's the question. Who looks like they're captive to fear, and who looks like they're free? You look at both people, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Who looks like they're bound up with a divided heart, and who looks like they're free with a singularity of worship? Who? Who really understood Jesus? See, Barnabas was a man who had experienced such generosity of Christ that it made him generous. But Ananias and Sapphira are people who try to fake it on the outside when it's not really there on the inside. That's the deal. And guys, this is the heart of religion. It's, tr- it's making a bargain with God. I'm not gonna bring all and then posturing in front of people as though you did sacrifice everything. Sometimes people will say to me, in fact, Austin, you just said this to me, I know how much you've sacrificed to move here and to start this church. And I go, yeah, but it wasn't everything. Internally, I really think, I'm like, yeah, but but hang on a second, it actually wasn't everything. Using your spirituality to appear a certain way to others shows that you have divided worship. You worship what they think more than you worship what he thinks. 
Look, the, the church, um, they didn't need Ananias and Sapphira to sell their house and give the money away. They didn't need it, right? And there's not an across-the-board command of the discipleship ethic of Jesus to sell your house and give your mon- the money away. There, there, there just isn't a command to do that, right? I would argue that sin has very, uh, sin often, not all the time, but sin often has very little to do with what you actually do. But it has a lot to do with why you do what you do. See, almost all sin can be boiled down to fear. And this passage, it shows us this perfectly. Where does greed come from? Where, where does deceit come from? It comes from fear. Do, do you see it? See, see, greed, what is greed? Greed is the fear that I will not have enough and that I, and that I can't trust God to provide enough for me. That's where greed, greed comes from. It's from fear. Uh, what, what about deceit? Where does deceit come from? Well, it's a fear of what people think, right? Valuing the opinions of others above the truth. Wanting to appear a specific way, that becoming the goal of your life rather than honoring God with your money. It's fear. Fear is the root at almost all sin. But the point of this passage is that you're not gonna be judged by people. You're gonna be judged by God with your life. Notice at the end of verse five, after Ananias has died, it says, great fear came upon all who heard about it. And then again in verse 11, after Sapphira has died, it says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Here's what Luke, the author of Acts, is saying. God means for his people to fear treating the Holy Spirit with contempt. You can't lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't pretend with the Holy Spirit. It's gotta be, see, with religion, you can always pretend. You just can. You go and you go through the motions. You do the right things. You show up on the, on the Sunday or the Saturday, whatever it is, and you do the stuff, and your heart can remain the same, but not with the Holy Spirit. It says in the scriptures, God doesn't look at what man looks at. He looks at the heart. You can't lie to him. God wants us to fear treating the Holy Spirit with contempt because while fear of anything but God leads to bondage, leads us to sin, the fear of God leads to freedom. The fear of God leads us to care more about what he thinks and thus live more accordance with his design. That's what he wants for everyone. See, look, God knows your motivation. He knows what motivates you. He knows why you do the things that you do, not just the things that you do. All I can know about most of you is just what you do. But God knows what's deeper, right? So when you make him the center of your life, he will actually free you because that singularity of worship, because you don't have a divided heart, he will free you from your need to please people. He will free you from your need to perform. He will free you from your need to control and to protect yourself. Don't you want freedom like that? Here's the gospel. Get rid of your religious posturing. Repent even of your right doing because it was for the wrong reason. And get him and then you're gonna be free like Jesus was free. You really will. That's what repentance is. And this is how freedom from fear actually happens. It's the glory of repentance. So you cannot remain religious and repentant. You just can't. You can't be religious and repentant. Uh, Repentance kills religion, 
Because what repentance is doing is it's taking off the silly, stuffy act and saying, I need you, God. (laughs) I can't perform. I'm not better than anyone else around me. While they know my actions, God, you know my heart. I'm not tricking you at all. I need my identity to change so that I can be free from this fear of what others think about me or this fear of my own self-preservation. I want to share just two quotes with you that have just shaped my understanding of what repentance is, what what this actually looks like practically. This first one's from Rosaria Butterfield, who's just a phenomenal author. She says this, speaking of a difficult time in her life, she says, in this crucible of confusion, I learned something important. I learned the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. Yeah, phones out, taking a photo. This is one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned about repentance. Repentance is not, I'm far from God. I I identify with my sin. And so God, would you take me back? No, no, no. Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. So repentance is saying, God, I identify more with you than things that I've done. Thank you for your sacrifice. Help me to walk in line with it. That's repentance. Secondly, Peter Kreeft. I see you, Josh. Uh, In order to be included in heaven's kingdom, sins must be honestly repented. Every sin meets its necessary fate, expulsion from the kingdom. And if we cling to the spiritual garbage, we will find ourselves in the universe's spiritual garbage dump. God does not forgive sins. He forgives sinners and destroys sins. If the sinner does not identify himself with his sins, he's not destroyed. This non-identifying, this refusal is repentance. (sighs) Do you see? He wants to give you such love, such kindness, such a righteous identity that you become a saint. The very identity of your life changes. You become more identified with him than with your behavior. I just want to simply ask you the question, whose behavior, whose actions matter more in your life, yours or his? When you elevate your sin to be, say more about your identity than you elevate the work on the cross and in the resurrection to say more about your identif- identity, then you are saying, I am a more weighty person in the course of human history than Christ. You don't want to say that. It's this mindset, it's this kind of heart that will keep you close to him at any point being ready to say, I don't want to give my money away, God, so show me your love again. Help me to be like you. I don't want to tell the truth because I fear this, Lord. So would you show me that your opinion matters more so that I can walk in freedom? That's the gospel. And this is what Ananias and Sapphira's religious impulse would not let them say. But it is what everyone who fears God, everyone who is in Christ, can say. God, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Set me free. Show me how to walk in the freedom that you've given me. So to get practical, to end, we need to learn how to respond rather than react. I really think that this story teaches us we need to learn how to respond to heaven rather than react to the people around us, to what's going on around us. The religious are always reacting. 
those who know him live in response. The religious are constantly going, well, what did they do? I, well, I probably should do that too. Oh, they said that's the right thing to do, so I, I guess I should do that too. But those who know him say, it doesn't matter what they're doing. God, I need to hear it from you. You can imagine that uh, the gift of Barnabas caused quite a stir in the church. It would cause a stir in our church too, if you guys knew about it. If there was somebody who had sold their, whole, their house and they gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to the church and everybody found out about it, you'd be like, can you believe it? They did that. That's incredible, right? People were probably impressed. Uh, people probably talked a lot about it and thought, oh man, <laughs> Barnabas, oh my gosh. Son of encouragement. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you can imagine that Ananias and Sapphira seeing it, they wanted the same reaction. They did. See, they really couldn't afford it, obviously. At least they believed they couldn't afford it. But they wanted to appear like someone who would give their home away. But maybe God wasn't even asking them to give their home away. Doesn't the text kind of even say that? The, while, while you owned the house, it was at your disposal. Before, when you sold the house, the money was at your disposal. It was your money. This isn't some kind of communist-like dictatorship. You don't have to give us your money. It was at your disposal. It was yours. But the religious will always take a conviction for one and make it a rule for all. The religious will always take a conviction of one and make it the rule for all. My conviction is that we should feed the homeless. So our church has a rule that everybody has to feed the homeless. Well, you just showed your cards. You're really religious. I have a conviction that everybody should spend time doing short-term mission trips. So everybody has to do it. Well, you just showed your cards. The religious always take a conviction of one and they make it a rule for all. That's religion. But our job as followers of Jesus is not to react to what's going on around us, but it's to hear what he's saying. You have the mind of Christ to listen in, to read the scriptures and say, but what are you saying, God? Because I can't afford to have a thought in my mind that you don't have in yours about the world, about me. I gotta know, what would you have me do? Now some things, guys, we know, that some things are very black and white. Sexuality belongs within a marriage. You don't need to get a word from God about that. It's in the text. Some things are very black and white. Lying? No, God's not asking you to lie. We should be people of the truth. But there are lots of different convictions that do fall in the gray area, and I actually think this is one of them. There's no rule that you have to sell your house and give the money to the church. They reacted, they didn't respond. So how do you move beyond religion? How do you move beyond religion? Jesus has a key to get us out of religion and into real relationship with a good father. And here's the key. It's in John chapter five. It's this phrase, it will change your life. It's changed mine. I only do what I see the father doing. I only do what I can see the father doing. What does that mean? It means I, have to, I, I don't know what to do if I'm not close, close to the father. That's what it means. But it also means I don't look around at the people around me. I don't read articles online about what's kind of the newest trend in Christianity. I, I, I don't do any of that stuff to get my authority on, over my life of what to do. No, no, I gotta get alone with him. I gotta get alone with the text, and I gotta go, but what would you have me do in this situation? God, give me wisdom. It's not, I only do what I see others doing. It's not that. It's not, 
I only do what I read Christians should be doing. It's not that. In fact, this is the most tempting one. It's not, I only do what people criticize Christians for not doing, right? Do you see it? You see it all the time, people, well, the church, if the church should do this, and you're like, oh, well then, oh yeah, man, those people who don't follow Jesus are right, and so I'm gonna do that. You know what you just did? You turned it into a religion, the very thing that they don't want. You know what they're hungry for? To see a person who's on fire with a relationship with the living God. And you just turned it into, well, I'm just gonna find out what the world doesn't like about the church, and then I'm gonna try and, you know, do the opposite. We should not be led by the world. We should be led by his spirit. I only do what I see the Father doing. Say it. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do what I see my Father doing. This is the invitation, I believe, of the text. It's also just, on a personal note, this is the invitation of our church. We are not a church that tries to have top, even go read our core values. There's nothing in our core values that are top down, here's what you have to do. We understand that what it means to be a disciple fully alive means to be a disciple who's surrendered to his spirit. Okay? Let's all stand together.